Amen, and you may be seated. <clears throat> you'll turn for our Old Testament reading and text to Psalm 8, and then to our New Testament reading, which is found in the Epistle to the Hebrews. I'm going to be reading chapter 2 of the Epistle to the Hebrews. <clears throat> so Psalm 8, and then Hebrews chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then our New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of our God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word read and heard from your old book and from your new book. We've even read some of these same words, which helps us to see Jesus in the Old Testament text. Lord, illumine the word to our hearts and to our minds and and give us ears to hear now as your word is proclaimed and grant the unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant and the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that it might go forth with power and with clarity and let that unction extend to the ears of those gathered. And Lord, we pray that you would set these truths firmly in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm continuing what I started a couple of months ago um, of looking at some various psalms in the Sundays that I'm going to be here until Matthew comes. Of course, you'll recall that I made a little bit of a mistake thinking that I had not preached someone here, only to learn that I had, and then discovered my intent to preach Psalm 2. I'd preached Psalm 2 here, but decided to do it anyway uh, when I was here last time to get to set before you these, as Dr. Robertson calls them, these twin pillars at the entranceway of the sanctuary of the Psalter itself with one and two. Well, I'm going to try my best not to be repetitious as we move forward in my selection of psalms. I did preach Psalm 8 one time at Reformation, and some of you may have been here there uh, to hear it, but it was probably long enough ago that it won't make that much difference uh, now uh, anyway. Um, I did make a, a terrible mistake yesterday. I was driving here, and on Sermon Audio, I found where St. Clair Ferguson preached on this text. Now, my sermon's fully prepared and ready to go, and then I hear St. Clair Ferguson, and I go, why did I listen to that? I was even tempted to come in here and just lip sync, but I knew that you would hear that Scottish accent and that, that you would recognize it, and I couldn't 
get away with it. But I would commend his sermon to you on sermon audio on, on Psalm 8. It's excellent. I do want to refer to one of the things that, uh, that, that he pointed out that I thought was, was, was really compelling in, in the sermon that he preached. I'm sure that you're familiar with Dr. Ferguson, or most of you are. And in, in my opinion, he's one of the greatest preachers on the planet today. He's outstanding when he preaches. Of course, the accent doesn't hurt nor does the economy of words that those who have similar accents seem to have that, that we don't share ordinarily in, in our culture. But note the title of the psalm. And remember, it's my conviction that the titles themselves are inspired of God, though not written by the psalmist. No, they were written by whoever the editor was who gathered together the psalms and arrange them so that we would have them in the canon of Scripture in that post-exilic period. Most think probably around the time that Ezra returned to bring spiritual reforms, and some have even speculated that it may have been Ezra himself who did this. We don't know that for sure. But Remember, the canon of the Old Testament was still open at the time that this work was done. And I think the Holy Spirit superintended over that work in order to give us the Psalter as we have it. So let's look briefly at the title, which isn't particularly helpful to us in this case. Oftentimes titles are, in this case, not so much the, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, and we don't know what a Giddeth is. We don't know whether Giddeth is a place, whether Giddeth is a people, whether Giddeth is a, a psalm tune, whether the Giddeth is an instrument, whether the Giddeth is a style of music. We don't know. That's lost to us. Um, but it's probably a musical reference of some kind that this was to be given to uh, to the choir master, remember, in that post-exilic period, the temple has been restored. The people of God are coming back uh, to worship God. <clears throat> but then we're also told that it's a psalm of David. And so David was the author of this particular psalm. And, and if you look at book 1, Psalms 1 to 41, after Psalm 1 and 2, every psalm but two of them have the title of David. And in both cases... The two that don't have, those psalms go directly with the psalm that precedes it. It's like the title goes for both psalms. So I have great confidence that, that David wrote, all, wrote, wrote 39 at least of the first 41 psalms, probably all 41 within, the, within book 1 that we find in the Psalter. I also said that I wanted to try to set it in its place in the Psalter. Uh, here we are, of course, in book one. And if you follow Dr. Morales' breakdown, the emphasis of book one would be the rise of the Davidic kingdom. And I think I could bear that out if I had time that we don't have uh, today. <clears throat> but Dr. Robertson did notice something that's, that's unique, and that is that every time in book one, and you have it in a number of places in book one, that you have an acrostic psalm. You know what an acrostic psalm is? Well, maybe I'll explain it. An acrostic psalm in Hebrew, you can't see it in the English translations, each successive verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
A true acrostic psalm has 22, full acrostic psalm, has 22 verses. The first one begins with Aleph and then proceeds through the alphabet. It's a poetic structure that poetry. And Psalms 9 and 10, probably at one time one psalm, but now divided into two because the acrostic going through the alphabet simply continues from 9 to 10. 9 and 10 are an acrostic psalm. You see the same thing as you look at Psalm 25. It's an acrostic psalm. If you look at Psalms 34, it's an acrostic psalm. And what Dr. Robertson observed is the psalm in book one, just prior to an acrostic psalm, is a creation hymn. Every time. You can go and look. Every single time, it's a creation hymn. And then he says, why is that the case? And his answer is the same as mine. I don't have the foggiest notion. (laughs) I I, I don't know. Maybe you can think about it and look and wonder about it. And and, and why would whoever put this together put a creation hymn or a hymn that praises God for as the creator prior to the acrostic psalms in book one? Now, Now, book five also has acrostic psalms, 119, the most... That's the acrostic psalm of all acrostic psalms, Um, Psalm 119. 118 is not a creation hymn that comes before it. But in book one, this is a feature that we see. That's just trivia. (laughs) That's just something that you didn't know that now you know. And I don't know the significance of it, but perhaps there is a significance for it. But this is clearly a hymn that praises God the Creator. And here's where I want to bring in one of the things Dr. Um, Ferguson said. I'm tempted just to redo my sermon altogether. His sermon was so good. But he gave an illustration of one time when he was visiting in Scotland at a church where a friend of his was the pastor. And this pastor, like most pastors, and like Sinclair Ferguson admitted himself, had a habit in public worship, that every time he prayed, he would address God the exact same way. Like, our Father in heaven, or Heavenly Father, or Dear Father. Every time we tend to fall into these kind of habits, I don't know whether Pete does, I haven't paid enough attention to it to see whether he does or not. We, we tend to address God the same way every time. There's not anything really wrong about that, as long as we're thinking about the address as we're addressing God. But this one minister who was noted for that shocked and surprised everybody in the congregation, including Dr. Ferguson. And he said, maybe even God, of course, God's not shocked by anything. He was being a bit facetious there. When he bowed his head and he said, your majesty. He addressed God as your majesty. Now, remember, you're talking about Scotland. You're talking about the United Kingdom, uh, a a nation that has a monarch and and the queen, if you meet the queen, the, the etiquette is that you bow before her and then you call her your majesty. Now, if that's true for a monarch on earth, how much more true is that of Almighty God who is the king of heaven and earth? And it it struck me, your majesty. That's precisely what David does to begin his psalm 
and to end it. Listen to how he says it. O Lord Yahweh, our Lord Adonai, Yahweh, my Lord, that being his title. I'm your servant, you're my Lord. Yahweh is my Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your majesty. Your majesty. And of course, a little bit later in the psalm, we're going to see that David is probably, as he's inspired to write this, you know, you know, maybe he did it when he was younger. Maybe he wrote this psalm when he was a, a shepherd and he had his harp out at night. And he's watching over the flocks and he's playing his harp and he looks up at the heavens. Or, or maybe David goes out in the palace as he's king in, in, in the dead of night and he looks up and he sees the heavens above him. When a believer sees the heavens, when a believer sees creation, the believer's mind always goes higher to the one who made it. Yes, oftentimes we look at the universe, we think how majestic it is, like mountains. I've never been to the Rockies. I've got to go to the Rockies. They're majestic, are they not? But but what are they compared to Mount Everest? <laughs> if, if you were to go and see the majesty of that peak. We think of mountains. We think of majesty. We think of the heavens. We think of majesty. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is the, the fingerprint of God who is truly majestic. And David is saying, your majesty how majestic is your name because your fingerprint is all over your creation. And that's how he begins and how he ends this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory. Oops, I'm going to hit that some more if I'm not careful. You have set your glory above the heavens. Above the heavens. Like I said, a little bit later, he's going to be considering the heavens. But, but think about that. Think about the immensity of the universe. I've been told that with the naked eye, you can see four to 5,000 distinctive stars looking at the sky. With telescopes... You can peer much further and see in much more detail. And, and the number of the stars with early telescopes, they saw these clouds. And then with the perfecting of that technology, they saw, no, those clouds are not clouds. Those are galaxies. <laughs> the number of stars are not counted in the billions and trillions. But more than that, in terms of the immensity the immensity of the universe. And that has its own majesty. But Isaiah says, with the span of the hand, he meted out the heavens. God said, nope, about that big. Boom. He is immense, even more, infinitely more than creation itself. And, and the believer when we look at creation, our mind immediately goes to the creator 
and then to astonishment and praise. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And here, I don't think he's talking about the invisible heavens that he created, that, that, that he inhabited with the angels, that he's made his dwelling place, but really the heavens that we can see, the stars, the galaxies, God above the heavens. But, but it doesn't mean biblically that he's distant. Now he's imminent in his creation as well. And we're going to see that as we come through this text. <clears throat> you have set your glory above the heavens. And th- then we have this verse that seems utterly out of place. But you're thinking about immense things. And now he starts talking about babies and nursing babes. He says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. So, so first of all, David is contemplating the immensity of the universe, and God is bigger still. And now he comes down to the earth to something that's very small and weak and helpless. And yet from that which is small and weak and helpless, God has ordained strength. It seems out of place. But it's not. And here we see that God is not only transcendent above the heavens, but he's imminent in creation. Even paying attention to the tiniest detail and having purpose for those that are the weakest and the smallest among us, the most helpless among us, to establish strength through them, that is the babes, the nursing babes. And and he sets it in this context, he says, because of your foes, to steal the enemy and the avenger. What does this mean? It's, it's hard for us to understand. How are babies going to steal the enemy and the avenger and overcome them? And I think you've got to think covenantally to understand these things. You've got to be a Presbyterian to understand these things. And the place that children have in the covenant and God's purpose. And yes, the enemies of the people of God, they seem mighty and strong, but the least in the kingdom are more mighty in the purposes of God. And we, when we think of this text as well, we can't help but think about how Jesus quotes it. I'm not going to take the time to look at it. You can look in Matthew 21 this afternoon, if you'd like, to look at it more specifically in context. But you remember when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When he's approaching the city, everybody's singing his praises. They're taking their cloaks off, they're putting them before him, they're waving the palm branches before him as Jesus makes his way to the city and into the city. But then as Jesus ascends the steps and enters into the temple, whether it was that day or the next day, you can work out the differences between the Gospels there, between Mark and and then Matthew and, and Luke's accounts. Matthew and Luke, it seems like he goes straightway from the triumphal entry to cleanse the temple. But Mark adds a detail. No, he went home and spent the night in Bethany and then came back and cleansed the temple It can be resolved either way, exegetically. 
I'll leave that to you as well. But, but Jesus makes his way up the steps into the temple. And what does he do? He cleanses his father's house. We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning. He actually did it twice. The first time was at the beginning of his ministry. And the last time was the last week of his ministry. He did it twice. If you harmonize John's gospel and account with that of the synoptic gospels. But on this occasion, at the end his father's house. And Jake was trying to imagine what it would be like. But don't paint the picture, please, okay? But he, he was trying to imagine what that would be like and what his face would be like and the, the wrath that would be on his face. You know, as, as he's weaving that whip the first time. As he's weaving that whip and, and, his, and his righteous indignation against what Annas and Caiaphas have done to the house of God and to the court of the Gentiles, to the court of the nations. But to have been there, it would have been something. Can you imagine you're in the temple and all of a sudden you hear cages being toppled over and animals running through the temple precinct and turtle doves flying in the air and tables being thrown over and Tyrian coinage rolling across the marble floor. Can, can you imagine what it was like that day? To see that? But then as we read the account, as it goes further what happens? Almost as soon as he finishes cleansing the temple to the indignation of the chief priest and the leaders of God's people who determined at that moment he must die, Jesus sits down and starts healing the sick. The blind, the lame, they come to him, he touches them. The blind can see, the lame can walk. And do you remember what happened next? the children started singing. Remember that? Before it was everybody. But now as they're in the temple, and now as Jesus has cleansed the temple, and you can see the anger of the religious authorities of the day, the adults became intimidated, (laughs) and they were observing, but it was the children that started to sing. When I was writing my books and I came to that scene, I had a lot of fun with this particular interplay in the second book in the, the historical novels that, that I've written. had a lot of fun with this particular interplay and in one of the characters that was in the book. And you can just imagine it. Jesus is healing the sick. Nobody's singing. And then one of the children remembering what they were singing as he was coming into the temple. Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, the last of the Hallel, the Hallelujah Psalms that are sung at Passover. The latter portion of that psalm is what they were singing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the children begin to sing. And remember what the religious authorities said to Jesus? Do you hear what they're doing? Do you stop them? Stop them. What did Jesus say to them? Have you forgotten what David says in the psalm? I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Have you not read? Is how it actually reads. Out of the mouths of babes and infants. God has perfected praise 
it's it's actually closer to the Greek the Septuagint version there. Praise for strength. Jesus quotes this text and says, "What you're seeing happening is the fulfillment of the words of David in Psalm chapter eight. The children were unintimidated. The children just knew to have faith and to sing praises. The children demonstrate strength. And you need to recognize that among covenant children. Yes, you have to teach them to obey. You don't have to teach them to sin. We know that. They're sinners. They're sinners by nature. But as they are nurtured in the covenant community, as God's name is placed upon them in baptism, they will amaze and astound you as you disciple them. The purity and the strength of their faith is often astounding. I don't know if I've used this illustration before, but when Charles Biggs was here, remember when Charles came and visited and we went over to Suffolk and I taught the Bible study there and and then we had a season of prayer. I may have said this to you, but I'm going to tell you again. We had a season of prayer, and I said, anybody can pray. Men, women, children, you can pray. And the floor was filled with children. I don't know how many, 15 of them, sitting at my feet. I opened the prayer. Some of the adults began to sort of tentatively pray a little bit, and then one of the kids started to pray. And the adults didn't have an opportunity to pray. One right after the other, they were pleading with God to establish and build a new church. Six, seven-year-old kids on their knees, literally on their knees at my feet. When we say amen, Charles ended the prayer. I looked up, running down his face. God establishes strength. Yes, even in what we would consider the least among us in the covenant community. Not just children, the age of our children. No, these are big kids. <laughs> well, we got one. <laughs> we, we, we have one in here that's nursing babe. That's what it's like in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. And that's why those of this world cannot understand how the kingdom of God functions and operates. And so the text belongs here. And Jesus seizes upon it to explain to them the phenomenon that they are seeing. These children recognize the Christ. They recognize the Messiah, the son of David, their king, and they're not afraid to sing to him. And then David begins to contemplate creation. He already has, but now more specifically... Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers. Now note that. When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers. It's sort of like Isaiah says with the span of the hand. This is finger painting for God. I mean, the creation is nothing for him. It's nothing for him. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when you look at the immensity of the universe, of course, the believer creator, who's more immense still. Then he asks this question. 
What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And I think we have to understand this really in two ways. One is he's thinking of creation. And he's thinking of the creation of Adam. So Genesis is in David's mind here. Also, David's thinking of himself. I think the reference here to son of man is probably a reference to himself. He's the son of Adam and now he's the king. But also, as we see in Hebrews, he's thinking of the future. And he's thinking of what is man, that is the man who's made a little lower than the heavenly beings, a little lower than the angels in Hebrews. He's thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So all these things are in view as you're reading this psalm. First of all, the creation of Adam. And then, why are you mindful of Adam? And beyond Adam, why are you mindful of mankind? And, 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 and why are you mindful of me when I consider the vastness of the heavens? What is man? You could even say, what is the earth? Think about it. When you think of the immensity of the universe, what is the earth? When you're thinking about, you can't measure it in trillions or whatever comes after that. The number of the stars, the immensity of the universe, and the more immense and great God who made it. You see how distant that makes him seem? What is the earth? It's a speck of dust that's revolving revolving around a speck of dust we call the sun. galaxy that's a speck of dust maybe a slight small cloud in this immense universe. What is the earth? What is man? Who am I? You see how you would have this, you should have the same question. I heard someone say, I don't think it was Dr. Ferguson, it may have been, I was listening to him yesterday. In order for the earth to be the earth in God's creation, where there can be inhabited life, where the story of redemption will play out that God has ordained from the foundation of the earth, the universe had to be this immense. I mean, if you think about gravitational pulls, if you think about temperature, if you think about all these scientific things that make this planet inhabitable for life, it's extraordinary. And so the vastness of the universe still serves that plan of redemption that's being worked out on this speck of dust. And God is not distant. He's imminent in it, you see. And God is not only mindful of the earth. He's mindful of man, Adam, and of mankind that comes from Adam. And he's mindful of the son of man. He's mindful of me. And as he's already said, he's mindful of the, the nursing babes, <laughs> the babes in arms. Have you noticed how pantheistic our culture has become? Oftentimes you'll hear people speak of what we would classify as providence, only they attribute it to what? The universe. How often have you heard that? 
You heard that recently? I've heard it on numerous occasions of, peop of people saying, you know, the universe just decided to bless me. No, it didn't. <laughs> the universe is inanimate. The universe is a creation. But what's happened when they say the universe, and then they glory in the majesty of the universe, they become utterly pantheistic. It's paganism to the core. One of the things you have to recognize when we're reading the scripture, this is what is definitive about Christianity, is there is a distinction always between creator and creature. God alone is eternal and infinite in all of his attributes. Creation is finite, though immense. From our perspective, it's finite. He does it with the fingers of his hand to use that anthropomorphic language because God is spirit and doesn't have fingers. We know that. But it uses that language to show how easily he's able to accomplish creation. But that distinction between creator and creature is what is distinctive about Christianity. And all rejection of Christianity ultimately succumbs to a form of pantheism. That is the confusion of creator with creation. In animating the inanimate, giving personal qualities to the universe, like its ability to order events. It's paganism, and it's rampant. And people use that language because they know there is some force that is destining what's taking place. But they've ruled out of their minds God, who is the creator from the beginning. And so what are they left with? Creation creating itself and somehow having personal characteristics. They personify that which is inanimate. It's pure paganism that's all it is and if you hear refer to the universe in that way you need to stop them and say no it didn't God created the universe our lives are not ordered according to the stars that's astrology these are pagan notions that come from rejecting the distinction between the creator who created the universe with the fingers of his hand or by the span of his hand or with the word of his mouth. He spoke it into creation. These are important things to recognize. But you can understand why David would ask the question, look at all that you've made. Who am I? Why are you mindful of me? Why are you mindful of the human race? When you think of the immensity of creation itself. But what does God declare back? I am even extending to the nursing babes and infants, even to the smallest among you. Through them I've established strength. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And that's the phrase Dr. Ferguson picked up, that you care for him. It's, the sermon is so good. You've got to listen to it. It's, he cares for you. 
but the question is, why would you care for me? And then he answers the question. I like what he says in verse 5. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, Again, remember what I told you, the paradigm. Creation first and Adam and mankind. David himself included, I think, as here son of man. But then son of man is also a messianic title that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately this psalm is about Christ. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And, and, and the Hebrew word there is, is Elohim. It can be translated, you've made him lower than the gods. Or you made him lower than God. The context has to tell you. And I think heavenly beings is a good translation here, especially when you see the way the writer to the Hebrews takes this verse and says, the angels... I think that what David had in mind is you've made man a little lower than the angels. And the writer of the Hebrews is going to take it up and say for a little while lower when pointing it to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we see that Adam was made, as we see, to exercise dominion over the creatures that were made, to exercise dominion over the earth, as God has dominion over the universe over the earth that God is mindful of, he's put man and he's exalted him to a place and he's given him dominion over the earth. We see that in Genesis. But you've made him a little lower than the angels. And as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, it's for a little while. That is, God the Son, when he became incarnate for a little while, was below the angels, but not for long. The whole point of Hebrews chapter 2 is to say Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, guess what? We in Christ Jesus are greater than the angels too. This was always God's intent. Yes, Adam was given dominion over the earth. Mankind was given dominion over the earth. But in God's eschatological purpose that is in the end had Adam kept covenant with God Adam would have entered into a new heavens and a new earth and a blessed communion with God that is far greater than it ever was in the garden itself and would have ruled with God over the angels do y'all know Dr. John Gerstner's work. Some of you, I'm sure, do. Dr. Gerstner taught R.C. Sproul everything R.C. knew. Pretty much. I've often said, Dr. Gerstner probably forgot more than R.C. ever learned. (laughs) That's the status I would put Dr. Gerstner. Don't agree with him on apologetics, a couple other things, but brilliant. have, Have any of you ever heard Dr. Gerstner teach? Some of you have. R.C. Sproul, everybody's heard R.C. Sproul. You know R.C.'s growl? That's not a growl. <laughs> R.C. got it from Gerstner. Sproul, what do you think about this? That, that, that's the way Gerstner talked all the time. I heard him one time speculate, and he tended to do that from time to time, and sometimes his speculations were not helpful. 
But in this case, it may have been. Dr. Gerstner speculated that what caused Lucifer's fall, the pride that caused his fall, may have been when God stooped down, metaphorically, but literally took the dust of the earth. Perhaps, I don't know how he did it, fashioned the man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, this creature of clay that he says is made in my image and after my likeness, that God said to the angels, one day you will bow before this creature. And Lucifer said, not me. It makes sense. I can't say I know it's true, but it makes sense of the fall of the serpent. I plan to ask that question when I go to heaven. Maybe, I'm sure Dr. Gerstner's already asked that question and had it answered. Maybe he can give the answer to me. I, I, I don't know, but it does make sense. The pride of Lucifer, not to bend the knee to the one that God made who would one day rule over him and over Michael the archangel, over Gabriel, over the myriads of angels that God created to inhabit the heavens, the invisible heavens that God created. Could be, could be Dr. Gerstner was on to something with that. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And then he delineates, and it's all things that you see on the earth that are under his feet. As he to the end. That's looking at it from the perspective of creation and Adam and Adam's dominion and what Adam lost in the fall. Remember before the fall, he had dominion and creation cooperated willfully with that dominion. He named the animals. <laughs> he didn't have to hoe the weeds out of his garden to till the garden. It was not by the sweat of his brow. Now, all of that is because of the curse that came down and then the earth in its upheaval, rejection of the dominion that man had over him in the fall. But this is how God designed it when he created the earth, the heavens and the earth, and when he created Adam and gave him that dominion. But let's turn to the Hebrews passage. We're not going to look at the whole of the chapter, but that portion that deals, that, that actually quotes the text that we have, beginning with verse 5, because the writer to the Hebrews realizes this psalm of David transcends Adam, it transcends David, it's ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The, the world to come. We're talking about in terms of this eschatological glory. It was not to angels. It has been testified somewhere. The writer of the Hebrews doesn't tell us that this was the Psalm of David. But it's a direct quote from, slightly paraphrased, from David's psalm. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, taking Elohim there, now in the Greek, as angels, the angelic beings. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And the the writer of the Hebrews wants us to know, I'm not talking about Adam. This is not Adam anymore. This is about the second Adam. This is about the last Adam. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look what he says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That is, everything now is already in subjection to him. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't mean everything isn't in subjection to him. It is, but not willfully. We see people all over the place that throw off his cords, as we saw in Psalm 2. People all over the place who live in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, against Yahweh and his anointed, again in Psalm 2. We see that all over the place, all around us. Those who do not willfully bow the knee to King Jesus, it doesn't change the fact that he's King Jesus right now. And everything is subject to him even now, though not willfully. They will willfully bow the knee when he comes in the clouds of glory. And the wicked will first run into the caves and cry out to the rocks and say, Fall on me to hide me for the coming wrath of the Lamb. But as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, every knee will bow of those in heaven on earth and under the earth. You mean those in hell will bow the knee to King Jesus? Yes. Not as their Savior, but as their King and their Judge for all eternity. They've deceived themselves into saying they're not under his dominion. In hell, they will know that they are under his dominion. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day will come when all of creation in heaven, on earth, will acknowledge the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is already king. He doesn't need to be made king. He's already been made king, as we saw in Psalm 2. At his ascension, at his coronation on the other side of the clouds. But now, in this history, we do not see everything under his dominion. It is under his willful dominion. We do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And note that. Note that turn of phrase. For a little while. From from a little lower to a little wider. Himself was incarnate upon the earth in order to fulfill his ministry of redemption where he was for a little while under the angels only for a little while. Now he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the name above every name. Not only those on earth will bow the knee and confess him, but the angels in heaven as well do before his presence. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, if you haven't gotten it yet, what he's saying here, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And there are all kinds of references to the themes we saw in Psalm 2 in that passage in the book of Hebrews as well. So this psalm, yes, it's about Adam. Yes, it's about mankind. Yes, the question, and the son of man, David's probably first thinking about himself. But fundamentally and ultimately, it's about the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. His humiliation in his incarnation, his death, his burial, his exaltation and resurrection and ascension and session at the right hand of God the Father. Psalm 8 ultimately and fundamentally is about namely Jesus, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. It's a glorious, glorious Christological psalm, especially we see it in light of the exposition of it in the New Testament. And then, of course, he ends the psalm as he begins it. Your majesty, your majesty, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what's the application? What do you take home from a text like this? I'm going to just tell you one thing to do. Fall on your knees. That's the application. Sometimes that's the application to a text, to a sermon. Fall on your knees and do what David did and exalt his name and declare his name majestic in all the earth. Worship. That's the application. Worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, this glorious text. We thank you that by inspiration, both Jesus and applying verse 2 to what was going on in the temple that day, and then the writer to the Hebrews in his ingenious, rich, biblical in a biblical theological sense, rich epistle, um, under your inspiration, interprets this psalm for us and helps us to see that while it is about Adam and even about David, it is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that these truths would, would find their way in our hearts and, and lift our hearts to elation and joy before you and to confidence and in zeal in the mission that you've left to us. You're the sovereign Lord who's building your church Lord and even here. And we pray that it's with this confidence that we will carry out the mission that you've given to us in anticipation of the age to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.